for me, I thought that, you know, I need, I need to share this. I need to tell these, the story. And this is the last generation of Nekwe survivors. After them, there's not going to be anyone left who's going to tell these stories firsthand. So it is so important right now to document them. You're now listening to the Art Persist podcast. If you're a listener to the show, you're probably expecting a better voice than this. And if you're not, the Art Persist podcast is a podcast that offers a glimpse into the lives of artists, activists from all over the world that are standing to all sorts of oppression. My name is Faz, and today we have a very special episode with an artist that just arrived from Palestine. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, Noor. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Alhamdulillah. Yes, all good. Uh, I wanted to start this um, interview by asking you, you know, with everything that is happening now, how are you? I know that you just arrived from Palestine, so I wanted to ask you, how are you? How are you feeling? Um, Mixed emotions, I mean, obviously super saddened by what's happening. Uh, We had a, a pause for a few days, but as I'm sure you followed the news and saw that the ceasefire was over this morning, and from, I think, this morning, already 30 people have been killed mm-hmm. um, just from one day. Just just this morning, actually. It's about 11.30 a.m. right now, Palestine time. I'm just feeling sad, overwhelmed, anger. But it also feels good to be in London. I have to say I'm seeing a lot of love for Palestine. It was a good move to come here. Have you been to the marshes? Here? I did. I went this past Saturday and it was amazing. It was mm-hmm. so beautiful. So many people from diverse backgrounds, so much love. Um, whenever I, someone would know I was Palestinian, I would get so much love from them. Mm-hmm. And after being in Palestine for the last uh, six weeks, since the beginning of the war, I definitely needed that. It gave me some hope that... Uh, we're not forgotten that there are still people out there who are fighting for our cause. Of it course. was beautiful. It was an amazing experience, that protest. Yeah, even to me, like I feel like when I go there, it's kind of almost like a healing thing. Like, 100%. Feel, yeah, especially was, when you read the news. and, and Exactly. All, yeah. I was there. I got arrived around 12 and left at 7.30. Mm-hmm. I was there all day. It was. I mean, I only left because it was cold and it was ending, obviously, too. But I would have loved to just spend the night and... <laughs> Just be in the streets. It was beautiful. Kids to uh, so many children. It was beautiful to for the parents to be teaching them young. I feel. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if you know, but I'm from Egypt. I told you. Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, I, I grew up there. I just came here like six years ago. Yeah, I recall um, you. You were telling me. Yeah. So basically, in Egypt, I grew up on on the Palestinian coast, basically, mm-hmm. despite what um, you know Sadat has done. <laughs> yeah, no. It's, uh, the people are definitely with us. People of Egypt. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna get to your work in relation to what's happening now. Uh, but I wanted to ask you first about your early life. Uh, where did you grow up, and what was life like? Uh, I was born in Silwan in East Jerusalem. Uh, till I was about, I grew up there till I was about 16, and then I went to Canada to finish high school. I have an uncle in Canada; he sponsored me. Mm-hmm. And I finished high school there and college. But the first 16 years uh, of growing up in East Jerusalem, obviously I went through the Intifada, the mm-hmm. uprising, which, um, you know, it was constant. Being from Silwan was constant uh, military invasions, curfews, 
neighbors, family members, being in and out of imprisoned for being out in the streets. The thing is, it's I also I don't want to just speak of the bad times because there was also beautiful times. But in Palestine, it's you know, there's the waves. So there's a, sometimes it's everything's calm, every, everyone we're living, coexisting, mm-hmm. but then something will happen where it's constant attacks, constant invasions, the curfews, the shootings, the killings. So overall, my, my experience growing up in Jerusalem was beautiful. I love my country, I love my city, mm-hmm. but obviously we went through a lot of hardships and continue because we're living under occupation. So we grew up under occupation, but as Palestinians, we never stopped living. We never stopped celebrating. We never stopped having weddings, graduations. So, you know, it's uh, it was beautiful at times, but it was sad at others. And how did your identity as a Palestinian like come into play once you left Palestine and went to Canada? I think because we are growing up again, spending. I mean, especially in high school, like that must yeah. have been something. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of. I went to a high school with a lot of immigrants, mm. so it was more brown people than there was white people. Oh, okay. So luckily, I didn't have you know any issues, um, and I didn't have people empathize with my who I am as a Palestinian because they themselves mostly came from um, communities who were obviously un- marginalized and mm-hmm. uh, similar situation to, to us. But um, I would have to say that, alhamdulillah, Canada was not, uh, there was uh, so many international people from all over the world that I never felt um, judged or, yeah, I have, yeah, it was it was a good experience. Yeah. And I- there was a huge Palestinian community. In, in Ramadan, in Eid, you know, we would all go to the mosque and it was mostly Palestinians. Whenever something would happen back home, we would all be protesting in the streets. So I felt that, which was beautiful. I felt that that connection. Mm-hmm. I find it, yeah, from my personal experience, it feels always that people are aware of the Palestinian struggle and, and what's happening there more than what you think when you watch the news. It's as if the news is trying to convince you otherwise but exactly there's yes. way more support like especially the marshes like are a clear indication on that exactly yeah unfortunately the media doesn't show the the support of the people for for the cause because that's doesn't fit their narrative mm-hmm. you know their narrative is we're terrorists and israel has the right to defend itself they skip the whole part of israel occupying palestine so of course if they show that the, there's so much support from the people for Palestine, it's going to go against what they're trying to, what their narrative is, mm-hmm. unfortunately. So when did you then become interested in art and what was your early influence? I don't think you become interested in art. I, I mm-hmm. feel you're just, you become... You get born into it. You get born into it, right? So I was, I've always been a creative. I always use different mediums of art just to express myself and to heal. But I don't, I don't, to be honest, I don't recall a certain time in my life where I'm like, okay, I'm an artist. Okay, I like, it was just something I've always, that I was born into and I've always done since I was young. I would always be doodling uh, in class. I would always 
have paint and uh, coloring books when I was young, and that was my favorite hobby, hobby to sit in the corner and color, and list, music was always a big influence to me too as well. I think, though, one thing I do remember, actually, I don't know if you've ever heard of the documentary Five Cameras? No. Okay, so Five Cameras is a documentary um, by a Palestinian farmer and mm-hmm. an amateur cameraman from the village of Belin in Palestine, and he documented um, his village's uh, protest, peaceful protest against the barrier wall that was going up in uh, in their village at that time in 2008. Mm-hmm. And the name Five Cameras represents how many cameras were broken while filming this documentary mm-hmm. by the military, which also shows uh, the the level of o- the occupation. And I just, I found that such a powerful way of storytelling because it was just him. Again, he was amateur. He wasn't a professional cameraman or a director or anything. Mm-hmm. Just going out and videotaping everything that was happening. And it was, yeah, I thought that was such a raw way and such a powerful way of sharing your story and showing on the ground what the occupation was really like. And this was back in 20, 2008. So there we didn't have the in social media and TikTok and all this right now where anybody can just be on the ground live streaming what's really going on. Back then for someone to be showcasing something so live was very rare. I remember watching that documentary and being so inspired and I think that too inspired my project, which I don't know if we'll later talk about, The Refugee Chronicles. So yeah, actually that movie, that documentary was actually won a 2012, it won a Sundance Film uh, Festival Award. It won other awards, but that was the most prominent one, which was amazing for a Palestinian farmer who just picked up his camera and just started documenting. Yeah, and he no, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, no experience whatsoever. So that really inspired my project, where I literally just got a camera, f- watched some YouTube videos, and started going to refugee camps and doing testimonials with Nakba survivors. Yeah. And I've spent the last three years of my life doing that. I have over 100 testimonials now. And um, yeah, I was very inspired by that documentary. It was just, and it's me, it's a one-woman show. I have my camera. I yeah, have, I know, yeah. I go into the camps. As in, like, refugee Refugee camp. camp. So these people have been living in refugee camps since not the 1948. Correct. Yeah, yeah, because I think that's an information that a lot oh, of people of do course. not know. Oh, of course, yeah, and, yeah. Or maybe, even if you know it, it's hard to, to fathom. Or, yeah. Uh, or like, yeah. And obviously, these refugee camps started off as tents, mm. makeshift tents, and then slowly... S- they started developing into into stone houses yeah um because it's, it was obvious you know after so many years that you can't continue to live in tents very humble stone houses very very stone. humble very yeah. very humble very narrow roads mm. the infrastructure is horrible yeah when it rains the, the camp floods yeah yeah I mean, it's yeah horrible horrible living situations so with with all the devastation that is happening now and especially what we talked about about um, media being one-sided, mainstream media. I wanted to ask you about your project, uh, The Refugee Chronicles. And so it's a project that documents, it, it gets testimonies from people that survived uh, the Nakba of 1948. And the Nakba, to the listener who doesn't know, it's it's where uh, 750,000 Palestinians got displaced and more than 15,000 were killed but I wanted to ask you, how, how did you take it upon yourself as, as, a, as a one woman crew, like, like you say, uh, to just 
to just do that project and and how do you how do you see the value of it now of course so um again because i spent the second half of my life in the diaspora um canada mexico one thing i noticed was the lack of knowledge for the nakba we have holocaust day um obviously we should it's a, was a horrible event in history mm-hmm. but and that's acknowledged worldwide but the nakba unless obviously you're arab most people don't know the nakba about yeah the i mean i had to introduce it exactly mm-hmm. that shouldn't be the case yeah most people aren't aware of how israel was created on the back of whom mm-hmm. so for me i remember if you guys recall the sheikh jarrah war mm-hmm. that happened in 2021 mm-hmm. um that is when the idea came to play i've always thought no i'm sorry that i've always had the idea of wanting to do it but that was when i finally took action and actually started the project yeah because i remember i was in mexico at the time and i remember posting about uh, and a lot of my followers on social media are from all over again just from what my work and wherever i lived so i have followers from all over the world a lot of people would would be like uh, questioning kind of well what happened how did this start uh, yani they were unaware of the context of the palestinian struggle mm-hmm. and how it started it was it didn't start in sheikh jarrah it wasn't people that didn't want to pay their rent and they were being evicted which was what the narrative was at that time um sheikh jarrah it was just a, a similar nakba situation the ongoing nakba i mean the nakba never ended so what i wanted to do was get these testimonials from first hand survivors who experienced the nakba this way that you can hear it firsthand from people who experienced it there's no way to question it because these people lived it they're sitting in refugee camps why are they not sitting in their homeland they have a story to tell and i wanted to share that i wanted them to explain to the world the palestinian narrative and what had happened in 1948 and why there's 1.1 million palestinian refugees sitting in refugee camps that can never go back to their villages mm-hmm. I can tell the world a historian can tell the world but there's nothing more powerful than it coming from someone who actually lived it and experienced it. Yes. Um and that's why I I went out because I just I got tired of the lack of knowledge of the Nakba. I got tired of people questioning the Nakba. I mean Israel and its allies are on a mission to erase the Nakba and to erase the narrative, the Palestinian narrative. I mean there's something happened. called the Nakba law, right? which is like that it it basically prohibits anybody to speak about what happened the exact uh, in 1948 yeah. i mean that's insane mm-hmm. and there's also anyone that was made refuge in 1948 can never come back mm-hmm. that's another law that uh, but any any jewish person all over the world can go back and claim and live in israel and get citizenship but these refugees who were displaced in 1948 and forced into exile can never go back to their villages. Mm-hmm. So yeah, for me I thought that you know, I need I need to share this. I need to tell these the story. And this is the last generation of Nakba survivors. After them there's not going to be anyone left who's going to tell these stories firsthand. So it is so important right now to document them. So important. And out of the 70 something I've already done, yani I think I would say 20% have already passed Allah yarhamhum. Oh. Quite a bit. And that's what I know of. 
So it's important. It's important to document this for future generations. I have three nieces. I want them to know what happened. Mm-hmm. I want them to hear it from firsthand. If I ever have kids, I want them to hear it from firsthand people who who survived the Nakba, not from history books. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's what's uh, it's that's why I started this project and what's the objective is. Hi, this is Georgia, co-founder of Bosla Arts. While I have your attention, and if you're enjoying this episode, can I please ask you that you go and give us a rating, follow us wherever you listen, and share this episode with friends and family. Only with your help can these really important stories be heard. Any of these stories, I mean, of course, you, you said more than 70 stories, and I, I can only imagine how horrifying some of these stories are but what sticks to you if like on the top of your head can you just give us some examples of of some of these stories or or some of the kind of repeated i don't know i guess trauma can you tell us more about that yeah i mean obviously it's very similar stories they all experience the same journey some more tragic than others you know there were some whose father they saw their father being shot in front of them as they were escaping some of them witnessed the Dawaime massacre. I don't know if you know about that that massacre. It's a mm-hmm. famous massacre that happened uh, in 1948 where uh, militants, Jewish militants, went into a mosque and mm-hmm. shot uh, worshippers as they were praying. Mm. I mean, that's some people saw that. I, I, w- I interviewed people who actually were there and s- recall this. Mm. I interviewed someone whose uh, whole family was killed mm-hmm. and she was buried under the dead bodies so their whole their bodies were on top of her she was pulled out of a lot pulled out from under the dead bodies of her family they were all shot mm-hmm. um, that was quite traumatizing that was in Deryasin which was another place that took that a massacre well, took place but you know one I do remember Obviously, I felt I left all the interviews heartbroken, sad, crying. A lot of the times, I would start crying. But one interview, there's Hajj Abdel Qadir. He's originally from Miska Tul Karim, but he has been living in the Balata refugee camp since 1950. He was made a refugee in 1948, and since the 1950s, he's been living in the Balata refugee camp, unable to return to his village, which is a few kilometers away, by the way. Mm-hmm. He has six sons. Three of them were martyred by Israel three in the, in the Balata camp, and two of them are in Israeli prison. They're political prisoners. You would think after everything this man has been through, he would have lose hope. But the hope he had for a free Palestine and the, the way he spoke of, you can tell he really believed that it was going to happen. Mm. And I remember just leaving that interview so so hopeful and full of so much, yeah, encouraged that inshallah that Palestine will be free. If a man that's gone through so much and still continues to go through much because living in Balata is not easy, can still have this faith that Palestine will be liberated, mm-hmm. was for me was amazing. And nowadays when I think of, yani, what's the point, what's going to happen, I, I worry for the future of my homeland, I always think of him. Mm-hmm. I always think of the the courage he had and the the faith he had, and I'm like, okay, if this 
man can go through everything and still have that, I, you know, I can do this. So he, he's always, he's stuck with me. And I actually, um, Al Jazeera aired my interview with him mm. for Nekba Day last year that just passed. Um, mm. I sent them the footage because his interview was so powerful and they, um, they aired it. And I know as well the UN, the, the UN, the UN as well, the UN used my video and they will be using my video again at the end of the month. Yeah, I've partnered with a few IMEU. They've also used a couple. So obviously I like to to share them with as many people as I, want, as I can, mm-hmm. uh, especially with big followings because the point is to get them out. Yes. I mean, I don't want to just keep them all to myself. Like, I want people to share them. So if I can collaborate with organizations like this, I can share the message, mm-hmm. I'm happy. Back to the hope thing. I know that uh, a lot of Nagba survivors keep their key with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Did you get I, to see I have many. Yeah, I yeah. have many. I mean, I have so many. I've met so many who still have their keys mm. um, waiting to return yeah, that's that's so beautiful. It's and so beautiful and so time. sad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, oh yeah, I have many, many. Mm-hmm. I have so much footage actually of of them with their keys. Mm. So uh, I want to get back to your point about uh, you being a one woman crew, and I really want to n- understand the technicalities of that. How do you do that? How do you go alone to to all these places? How do you find these people and 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 film them as well? And what like. What kind of range of skill set do you have to, to produce such work? Every camp, I have a runner. I have someone that works with me in mm. the camp. I reach out to, you know, I have contacts. Because, again, in, with my other project, my nonprofit, I do a lot of workshops in camps. So I've, always, I've been in camps for the last 12 years of my life. Mm. So I, I'm, I have contacts in the camps. And then they help source out uh, the, the elders. Mm. So... You know, just community and build, and talking to to fellow family num- members and neighbors in the camp still got me the elders, and then I just show up with my camera and mm. we go to their house and we set up, and I just start recording. Yeah, um, twelve years in camps. Yeah. What's life like then? I mean, you you kind of touched upon it, but I want to know more details about what's life like. Like, how do people? What's the what's the water situation, food, all of that? How do you live when you're controlled by another country that is that sees you as the enemy? You live horrible. I don't, it's just sad, honestly. It breaks my heart. It's horrible. Mm. It's not a good situation. Yeah. There's no security. There's no. There's no hope. You're confined to these camp walls that you can't leave. And there's just, you have no hope for the future. It's, you know, generation after generation being born into these camps. Mm. Generation after generation being born with no hope, no no liable future, to be honest. So, Mm. yeah, it's sad. It's just sad. I don't... Mm. I think it's the best way to describe it. It breaks my heart. Some camps are worse than others. Some are not. Some are a bit more developed, have community centers, but some are just horrible, horrible, mm. horrible living con- conditions. So talking about hope, I wanted to. I mean, that's a tr- very tricky question. But but how do you do? You have any hope for the future? Sometimes I do. Sometimes yeah. I don't. I think it just depends on the day. Mm. To be honest, you know, depends. 
right now um not so much because mm. you know i woke up this morning to the ceasefire being over and 30 people being killed mm. and it was at that time it was 8:30 a.m. palestine time mm. 6:30 a.m. london time so obviously i've you know that uh didn't feel nice sometimes i do yeah the other day i went to the protest and that gave me hope yeah. so to be honest it's not i can't just answer that yes or no i have to say depends depends on the day on what's happening on what i read that day on mm. what i saw and what i heard just you know it's not consistent the hope but inshallah but i guess just do, doing the work you do that that must come from a place of hope and you're not just a filmmaker you're also uh, a dj a coo of an organization yeah yeah i am actually <laughs> mm-hmm. so i guess i guess you must be hopeful if you do yeah, that work yeah of course right? of course i am hopeful Again, I okay, I would say yani in general I'm hopeful, but some days I wake up and I'm not hopeful. Yeah. But let's say 70% of the time, yes, I'm hopeful. Yeah. And and it's just life, right? Life, you know, up and is all ups and downs. You it just depends what's happening. Um these days though, I'm no, I'm not hopeful. These days I'm not hopeful. It's hard days. It's hard days. Yeah, it's hard it's to see hard. your people being massacred yeah. and displaced. Yeah. It's hard and to see all the western powers against us. Yeah. You know, it's heartbreaking. It and it makes me angry and it pisses me off that yeah, genocide like, Joe Biden is still supporting Israel and still allowing for this to happen because all they need to do is say stop and they would. I know, I know. With with that little brain power he he has he's, yeah. <laughs> he's really putting it into yeah, killing a lot of children so it's, many, it's very sad so many have already passed yeah the other day i uh, not the other day yesterday uh there was an attack uh, in jerusalem where, yeah. where three israelis died right and that was reported in all the news yeah but the same day a child that is like i don't know nine years old or something got killed in the and, Janine camp? And, and yeah nobody yeah, two actually two, two yeah and no, and yeah, no, nobody yeah, I didn't know, you see i'm saying one yeah, because there's no news that, yeah yeah i know it's it's really ridiculous how like little attention these mm-hmm. gets it's like it's normalized it doesn't like, fit in their narrative news yeah it yeah. doesn't make the news yeah yeah it doesn't fit in their narrative but alhamdulillah that we have social media nowadays yeah and alhamdulillah we have people on the ground who are documenting this and showcasing like yourself it. like myself and like others mm. m- thousands of others in Palestine so we don't need the the media the mainstream media anymore mm. yani look at mu'taz from yeah. mu'taz azaiza habibi mu'taz lahmi yeah. bas he gained 15 million followers in this short time crazy that's insane that's probably breaking records 2 million yeah yani again in just this short time her and there's many others from Gaza mm. these people aren't journalists or reporters Plastia. she's Plastia. like so young she's so yeah. young mm. i mean so thank you thank you to them we don't need who cares what mainstream media does or says because you have people on the ground yeah. and for you to deny that you know for a journalist a mainstream media journalist to go out and deny what these what these people are putting out you're going to look like an idiot yeah because there's proof yeah, yeah. and, yeah. and see, they are they are looking like yeah they're looking now, like idiots yeah. mm. 
It's like, do you think people are stupid? Yeah. Yesterday I was. They do, I think. Yeah. yeah. Yesterday I was at um, at the Soho House actually, yes. and I met this 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 some a couple asked me where I was from. I'm from Palestine. We started talking, and this like white Italian guy, like super super nice, super cute cute. He's like. You know, I never knew about Palestine till till October the seventh. That's when he discovered oh, Palestine. I know. I was like, okay, yeah. but he's like, you know, but it's crazy what they're saying: beheaded babies and raped women. He's like, yeah. I haven't seen any proof of this. Yeah, he's like, meanwhile, right. my feet is full of Palestinian kids being blown up to pieces. Mm. But you don't see any anything from the other side of what they're claiming. But but that gave me hope because yeah. for this person. That didn't know about Palestine. Doesn't know about Palestine. He himself is questioning the narrative now. He's yeah. questioning what is being told to him. Yeah. So that's a very good sign. Yeah, yeah. That is a good sign. Yeah. So how do you go about, like, with that aim that you want to mainstream these stories or at least uh, fight that erasure of history that we are seeing right now? We have witnessed recently a lot of artists Uh, being cancelled, just not even Palestinians, just because they're Arabs or uh, or just remotely are supporters of Palestine or just hope for a free Palestine. And I wanted to ask you, how do you go about this kind of censorship, this kind of control that we are seeing? <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. I yeah. will never uh, censor or filter what's really happening So mm -hmm. I don't hurt someone's feelings. I could care less, to be honest. I remember resident advisor last year. Was it last year? Not not too long ago. I don't mm -hmm. remember if it was in 2023. Yeah, I think it was the beginning of 2023. They did an article about my project. Mm -hmm. um, they did a big write-up. They interviewed me. They had videos of, of the testimonials, pictures. And I remember they did a post on Instagram. And the comments... Mm -hmm. in there were hilarious from from all the zionist lovers mm. were absolutely hilarious like you're terrorists i can't believe you're supporting this terrorist and what an anti anti-semite you know what the 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 uh, the headline was palestinian artist noor documents nakba survivors mm. it's still up there on their instagram something like this yani this yeah, is what yeah. the And the comments were hilarious. I mean, yeah. it just made me laugh. Mm -hmm. I thought it was so funny that I could that something like that could trigger people like this. But that's the problem. Is that I think the problem is when resident advisors see this and be like, "Oh, that's too risky. Uh, maybe we shouldn't get uh, a Palestinian artist, or or at least like think twice next time." That's that is the fear. I think. Yeah. Um, so how does it feel now having this project? while we are witnessing i've heard that like that we have officially crossed the numbers of the nakba now how does how does that make you feel makes me feel khara makes me feel horrible sad and where do you feel like that your project now sits within this it's so important now because my project is showing how the Nakba never ended, mm. how the Nakba is continuing. It's drawing parallels between what happened in 1948 and what is continuing to hap happen now in 2023. Yeah, and that's basically, I guess, what happens when people don't learn about history. You it, just repeat. You just mistakes. repeat it, exactly. And history, 
I remember in the, the beginning of the war, if you remember that footage of uh, the uh, people from Gaza leaving with their belongings, mm. they were displaced, mm-hmm. walking down the street with their belongings. I remember I did a post and I had a photo in, of 1948 refugees carrying their belongings, being displaced, and then a photo, 2023, of the people from Gaza. Same. The only difference was the 1948 photo was black and white, and the 2023 was a colored photo. Mm. Same. Same. Yeah, exact I, I same. I know the one, yes. You know, and mm. that broke me. It broke me so much to mm-hmm. see that happening again. Yeah. Yeah, it feels, well, khara is the best word to describe it. Yes, and um, I was also wondering, I mean, of course, you've seen all the interviews and and we've all tuned into Pierce Morgan because I guess he's one of the only people that kind of had uh, Palestinian voices. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to ask you, like, or like hear your words for it. W- what is the problem when when people kind of start midway and, and start the interviews by asking Uh, do you condemn what happened on the 7th of October? Especially, I think you, I mean, you're the one that could really answer this question. Yeah, it's, a, it's horrible. It's, it's infuriating when people start the conversation in the middle and not acknowledge what happened before October 7th for the last 75 years. It's infuriating. And sometimes I wonder, are these people dumb or are they just playing dumb? Mm. Because, yeah, and you think about it. Okay, Hamas went in and attacked October 7th. Why did they go in and attack? What happened before? It's not just a bunch of men woke up one day and decided they wanted to go into Israel and kill a bunch of people or do what, what, whatever they did. And it, there's context to it. And you can't start the story from the middle. It just, it makes no, absolutely no sense. Yes. It, so it's, it, it pisses me off, to be honest, when, I, when, when people start that, like, that conversation with, do you condemn Hamas? Do you condemn Hamas? I condemn Abouk, is what I want to tell them. <laughs> like, seriously, it's so annoying. Anjad, it's so annoying. And mm. I've been asked that question too. I remember when I post, when I started posting, they're like, well, what about what Hamas did? Like, no. Mm-hmm. That's not the point. Yani, think about why Hamas went in there to begin with. What have the Palestinian people been saying for the last 75 years? What do you think is gonna, people are going to do when you've been occupying them for 75 years under military occupation with no freedom? Yeah. yeah and what do you think? If you're a human being, what are you going to do? One of these days, you're going to explode and you're going to fight back. Mm-hmm. I think the trick that is in play here that the media plays and people like Pierce Morgan uh, do is that they kind of mix uh, causality with justification. Mm-hmm. It's as if this happened because of that is exactly equal to these people deserve to die. Yeah. While it's obviously not. Mm-hmm. This is logic and this is just being inhumane. Yeah. Um, and I think, exactly. yeah, I think that's the, that's yeah. the trick. So what's next for your project then? Where do you want to take it and what are your hopes for it? Of course. So right now I'm currently in the process of building a website, Mm -hmm. an archival website, so I can have a forever home for these testimonials. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's very important, something that people can go to as a resource, as a tool. So currently that's what I'm working on. And then I want to choose a few of the strongest ones and then build a short documentary off of that. Mm. Um, So I'm still kind of planning that and seeing how, 
what it looks like and how exactly I want to execute it. Um, but I think right now my main thing is continuing this project and gathering more testimonials because as I said, time is running out. This is the last generation. They're dying, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Um, and I want to document as much as possible. Yeah. So for me, uh, in addition to building the website, which is also important so I can start getting them out there and building the social media, the Instagram and all that, I want to continue building, uh, gathering more testimonials. And that's kind of where I'm at. Again, it's a one-woman show. I do the editing. I do the f every documenting. I do everything, the traveling. So it's taking longer than I want, mm -hmm. but um, I'm getting it done. So the Instagram for the listener is uh, at Refugee Chronicles. Please go there uh, and share around. Noor, I want to thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today and, and you know, getting to know you. And uh, I want to tell you, welcome to the UK. You have friends here and you have supporters. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Habibi. It was a pleasure as well. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, why don't you go back to our previous episodes? For example, our one with forensic architecture or our one with the Freedom Theatre from Palestine. Thank you and tune in to the next episode.